Thank you, Brother Larry. We'll be in Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Colossians chapter 4. I invite you to open your Bible there. And uh, it's exciting to hear about the work of the Gideons. And uh, if you... Uh, not familiar uh, with some of our uh, protocol, what we do uh, when uh, someone in the church or part of the church family has a loved one die. The church sends Bibles in memory of that person, and uh, some of you have probably received that card, and uh, that is a great uh, ministry. We are so thankful to be a part of it. But Colossians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning addressing a uh, fairly uh, recent uh, well, not just a fairly recent topic, but something that's been brought to the forefront here in the last week or so. Of course, unless you've been living under a rock and you crawled out to come to church this morning, you probably uh, have seen the news about uh, the Supreme Court's decision uh, overturning uh, Roe versus Wade. Of course, they've done a lot of other stuff recently. And I told Mary, you know, they released several uh, rulings on Friday. I feel bad for the people who were trying to get the other cases done, you know, because their cases got no, uh, no publicity at all. So, because this is such a big deal overturning uh, Roe versus Wade, but we're going to leave all the analysis of that decision to the pundits uh, because, you know, I can stand here on the authority of the Word of God to say life begins at conception and abortion is murder. And uh, we're going to leave it at that for now. Uh, I hope you'll come back tonight because... Uh, if the Lord allows me, I'm prepared to uh, take a closer look at when does life begin according to the Bible. Uh, what does the Bible say about the unborn? We're going to look at that, look at a couple of scriptures, and uh, I'll tell you that in studying for that sermon that we'll have tonight, uh, I was blown away at some of the things that I learned, uh, even having read these texts over and over. So I hope you'll come back tonight. We're going to look more at the sanctity of human life and how God views the unborn tonight. But this morning, we're going to look at Colossians 4. And in the wake of these big Supreme Court decisions, like the, the decision that was handed down on Friday, like the decision that was handed down seven years ago today that legalized same-sex marriage, Nationwide. Did you realize that came down seven years ago today? So many of these decisions directly confront a biblical view of morality. The only view of morality that we should be concerned with is true morality, which comes from this book. And as we look here in Colossians chapter 4, I think we can see from the Apostle Paul how you and I ought to respond. You turn on the news, you just look at your Facebook feed, you look at some other uh, places, and you can see that there's a lot of people mad about the case that came down on Friday, people who are on the other side of the issue. There are people that you may post something uh, that is pro-life. I know because it's happened to me before that somebody will come on and attack you for that stance. How do you respond when somebody attacks you for your belief and what the Bible says. How do you respond when someone has a different viewpoint than you do? We're going to find that here in Colossians chapter 4 this morning. But before we get to the main text, I think it's important to note that the Apostle Paul is writing this from prison. He's writing this in prison to the church at Colossae who would have no doubt loved to have had the types of freedoms that we have in the United States a church that in no doubt had some 
uh, it was in some ways oppressed. So you have a prisoner writing to Christians who do not have the type of freedoms that we have today, and you say, wow, if they're able to do this, there's no reason why those of us who enjoy the freedoms in the United States can't do this either. But before we get to the main text, which is in chapter 4, look back about a page in chapter 3. Because I want you to see that all the way back in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about how Christians ought to conduct themselves in daily living. And if you look in, in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. This is not the main text, but this is important to the entire discussion. I want you to see two little words here in this text. Down in verse 13, he says, bearing with one another. You see, here in, the, in, the, in uh, verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul is talking about how we, as Christians, ought to treat each other. We ought to treat each other well. We ought to treat each other with kindness and humility and patience. That's the way we ought to treat each other. And you say, hey, boy, I've known people in churches that didn't do that. But it ought to be easy. It ought to be easy because we all ought to at least be of, the, be of a like mind. We all ought to think the same thing. I mean, I do know some people who profess uh, that they are Christians and are pro-choice. And I don't. the two, according to God's word, don't go together. But there are people out there that are like that. Okay, but we ought to all be on the same page. We all ought to be of one mind. So it ought to be pretty easy to be kind to one another, to be patient with one another. And then you walk through the rest of what Paul's talking about. We get down into verse 18, and he's talking about the Christian home. And our brother Larry talked about stepping on some toes a minute ago. We could step on some toes if we preach through this, but we're not going to this morning, so your toes are safe. But he talked about how wives ought to treat their husbands, how husbands ought to treat their wives. He talks about how, how the, the bond servants, or in our, our modern language, how employees ought to act towards their boss and how bosses ought to act towards their employees. And then we get down into chapter 4, where we'll find our main text this morning. And we get to the final two verses of, well, not of chapter 4, the final two verses of this section of how Christians ought to behave. And he starts talking about how do we behave towards people who don't think the way we do. Read with me, if you will, in Colossians chapter 4, our main text this morning. We're going to look at two verses. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Since it's short, let's read it again. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you that all the things we could be doing today that we chose to be here in your house with your people, 
And of all the things we could be talking about this morning, Father, we have the opportunity to talk about your word, your divinely inspired word. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for these people who are here. I thank you that, that you've given uh, us your word to study. And I pray that, that each and every one who's in this room this morning would hear from you directly exactly what you'd have us to individually learn from the words that you've given this morning. I pray that the things I say will be your words and not mine. Be with us in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's something we need to settle before we get too deep into these two verses. Because really we could have two different sermons. We could have a sermon on verse Five, and we could have a sermon on verse 6, and I promise I won't be up here long enough to have delivered two different sermons, okay? But we're going to combine them into one sermon this morning, but there's something we need to settle from verse 5. And we've talked about it a little bit already, but Paul says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. Towards those who are outside. And of course, we know he's not talking about if somebody's standing outside the front door, we're inside, they're outside. And so walk in wisdom towards those who are not smart enough to come into the air conditioning, okay? I mean, that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. We know that as we look at this, what he means is those who their way of thinking and their way of living lies outside the parameters of Christianity. That's what he's talking about. Those who live in such a way that their lives are outside the parameters of Christianity. We're talking about people who are not saved, most likely. We're talking about people who are not living in accordance with the Word of God. So if we look back at verse 2, we get a little more context on who he's talking about because he says there in chapter 4, verse 2, "...continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving." Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. He says, pray that God would open a door for us to preach the word, that God would open a door for us to share the gospel with those who don't believe. Oh, and also, make sure you're walking wisely towards those who are outside. So that's who we're talking about. We're talking about unbelievers. The principles taught by Paul here apply in a much larger context. You see, we can take the principles here and we can say, not only those who are unbelievers, this is the way we ought to talk or we ought to act, the way we ought to live towards those who believe differently than we do politically. This is the way we ought to treat people who think differently than us on matters of abortion, on matters of things like maybe same-sex marriage. The way we ought to treat people who have a completely different viewpoint than we do on anything. This ought to get into every little aspect of our life. So what does Paul say we should do? The first thing he says there in verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom. Now we get into what does he mean by walk in wisdom? That word walk means to behave this way, to live your life in such a way, to conduct yourself in wisdom. So he says, behave with wisdom, live with wisdom towards those who are outside. Wisdom's a topic that's discussed all throughout the Bible. 
Of course, we're most familiar with the passages uh, in the Psalms and the Proverbs that talk about wisdom. We're, we're familiar with uh, passages like the 111th Psalm, verse 10, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know several of these from the Proverbs, Proverbs 4, 7. Solomon says, Wisdom's the principal thing. It's the most important thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Proverbs 3, 13 and 14. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. I like to be happy. Don't you like to be happy? Solomon said, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds, the proceeds of wisdom, are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. And then over in Proverbs 8, 11, he says, wisdom is better than rubies and all the things one may desire cannot compare with her. So we get the point. Godly wisdom is something we ought to desire among, above anything else. That's what Solomon said. And then Paul says we're to use that wisdom to determine how we live, how we conduct ourselves towards people who believe differently than we do, people who hold a different opinion than we do. Well, that's all well and good. I'll use godly wisdom to live, but how do I get godly wisdom, right? That may be the next question. James answered the question in James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, if you lack wisdom, he says, ask God. And God gives to all liberally without reproach. That's what James said. And you said, okay, I'll ask God for wisdom. Now, I'm just going to sit here and wait on God to just rain it down on me. Well, he's not going to do that but he did write it all down for us. As a matter of fact, if you just look back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul addresses this. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Where did Paul say the wisdom comes from? The word of Christ, the word of God. This is the wisdom of God. If you want the wisdom... You have to read it. That's what Paul was telling us. So, when it comes to how we ought to treat people who believe differently than us, and you say, how do I do that? Well, the wisdom comes from right here is what Paul says. Now, there's a lot of passages of Scripture that would address this topic. I picked one to give you an example. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to go back to Colossians 4 in a minute. If you've already lost your place there, you can find it again. You found it the first time. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul here, speaking to the church at Corinth, he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking about how they should treat each other, but we've already seen, or we'll see again in a minute, that he's told the, the Colossian Christians to treat outsiders the way they, same way they treat each other. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. 
Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now about faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest is love. Now I read that 1 Corinthians 13, that whole chapter in its entirety to say that the wisdom of God, and by virtue of the fact that Jesus is 100% God, the wisdom of Christ, as Paul put it, is that love is the greatest virtue of all virtues. It doesn't matter what else you do, if you don't have love, whatever you did was pointless. So back to our main topic. How do we treat others who believe differently than we believe? Well, first and foremost, we treat them with love. But I want you to listen real close. If you're daydreaming, pause it for a minute. You can go back to it as soon as this part is over. If you're doodling, stop doodling. Pay attention for a minute. This is important. Now, first of all, I want to say that you already do such a great job on what I'm about to say. But every once in a while, I need a fire lit under me to remind me there's more work to be done, to remind me that, hey, we can, we're doing great, but we can do better. So listen to this. Doesn't matter if we stood on this rooftop and shouted, we're pro-life. You see, if we don't stand beside the pregnant mama and support her and help her find good options, our pro-life stance doesn't matter because we hadn't loved her. That's why we support the Hannah Pregnancy Resource Center, and we ought to support it more now than ever. If we don't stand beside foster children, and those children looking for their forever home that are in waiting for adoption, if we don't support uh, organizations like The Call, which we do, but we ought to support them more now than ever, if we don't do those things but we want to say, hey, I am pro-life, our pro-life stance doesn't mean a thing. If we won't love on families who are trying or struggling to make ends meet, if we don't stand beside them and support them and help them. Now, I'm not talking about enabling them. I'm talking about helping them. If we don't do those things, our pro-life stance means nothing. If we don't love on children who are struggling, children who are in bad home situations, we've done a lot of that lately, and I'm thankful for that. But see, if we don't do those types of things, our pro-life stance means absolutely nothing. If we don't love on the elderly, if we don't love on our shut-ins, if we don't love on those who are infirmed, if we don't love on those who are in prison, if we don't love on the outcast of our society, 
our pro-life stance means nothing. Nothing whatsoever. You see, the problem is that there are a lot of people out there who they say they're pro-life, but they're really just pro-birth. That's just a straight fact. Because you see, Jesus Christ, the wisdom of Christ is that we love all people. And we care for all people. That's what this book says. Life begins at conception, but it doesn't end at birth. When we take the biblical wisdom from 1 Corinthians 13 addressing love, and we apply it to the way we live our lives as pro-life Christians, we come to this conclusion. And I've said it before, but I'm going to say it one more time. If we shout from the rooftop that we're pro-life and then refuse to help and love those around us, we're nothing but clanging symbols, according to the Apostle Paul. Look at, one more, look at another passage of Scripture with me real quick in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Paul talked about the wisdom of Christ, and you may say, well, you looked at, you know, I mean, the, the divinely inspired word of God in, in 1 Corinthians. So I say, hey, let's, act, let's look at some red words. Let's actually look at the words of Christ, okay? Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, and he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. Can you see that? Jesus sitting on the throne, and all the nations before him, and he goes to separate the believers from the unbelievers, just like a shepherd would divide the sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he'll also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then he will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let me just tell you from the wisdom of Jesus, from the wisdom of Christ, 
will never act more like lost people than when we neglect the least of those around us. And here's the thing. Paul didn't say in Colossians chapter 4 to just take your time. Oh, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside when you get around to it. When it's convenient for you, it's not what he said. He said redeeming the time. Now, let me put that uh, in a little clearer language. Let me put it in South Arkansas. Get to work now. It means work urgently. Time is short. The time is at hand. Jesus could come back at any time. Work urgently. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside your belief system. Let's move to point two, which is verse six, to speak with grace. But before we go any further, I want to tell you, because you're thinking, oh, we're only on the second point. There's only two points. And I spent a lot more time on the first point than I'll spend on the second point. Not that verse five is any more important than, than verse six. Not that behavior is necessarily any more important than speech. But I like what John MacArthur said on this issue, talking about verses 5 and 6. He said, it is only through walking in wisdom that believers' words will mean anything at all. In other words, if you ain't living right, they're not going to trust what you say. If you're not nice to them, they're not going to hear what you've got to say. William Barclay, he had this to say about these verses. He said, Christians must remember that it's not so much by their words. Uh, let me start that over. Christians must remember that it is not so much by their words as by their lives that they will attract people to or repel people from Christianity. On Christians is laid the great responsibility of showing Christ to others in their daily lives. You see, that's the summary of verse 5. You've professed Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning. On you and on me is laid the responsibility of showing Jesus Christ to the world. So we move into verse 6. Read it again. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Each one of what? Each one of those who are outside. How do we respond? Now, we've already talked about how we live, how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives. See, but now you got on Facebook. And somebody's one of these pro-choice people. You ever notice that, you know, I mean, we're pro-life. They're not anti-life. That's not what they want to call themselves. That's what they are, but that's not what they want to call themselves. Nobody's anti-anything, you know. Everybody's pro-something. Anyway, that's just a side note. But uh, you, somebody that's, that's pro-choice has made a Facebook comment. Like one that Mary told me about that she saw. Somebody, a pro-life person she saw on there said, these justices, these six justices that voted this way need Jesus. <laughs> really? As if Jesus would have voted the other way. But anyway, I don't... I think Jesus would vote for life. I mean, that's just what I read from his word. But anyway, you see that, and you just want to go comment on it. I told Mary, don't write anything, but she wasn't anyway, because she's more restrained than I am. 
Y'all don't know how many Facebook posts I delete right before I hit send. Okay, and I see a lot that I want to call somebody and say, you really ought to delete that. You don't know how many I've posted that so you may have seen them first, but then I go back and delete it because I shouldn't have said that. Talking about how you ought to talk now. And talking is more than just this. In today's society, it is with these as well. But he says, how should we speak? He says it ought to be gracious. That means it ought to be kind. See, we ought to treat people with kindness, and then we ought to speak to them with kindness. See how simple this is? You really get to boiling it all down. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's be nice to people. That's what he's talking about. We live in a time, though, when gracious speech has just flown out the window. And a lot of it's because of social media. A lot of it's because we feel like we can get behind this little screen and we're a lot bolder typing what we want to say than we would ever say to somebody's face. And it's completely brought society to another level. Politicians, we could start naming names, but we won't. But they're in your face. Oh, if I don't like you, I'm going to make fun of you on social media. I'm going to degrade you in every way possible. Let me tell you, for a child of God to do those things flies in the face of Jesus. Paul says, let your speech be with grace. Let your speech be kind. And I'll go one step further and say a Christian has no business endorsing that type of speech in a politician or anybody else. It's wrong, and it flies in the face of Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 3, Paul already told us, you saw that earlier, that we ought to be kind to fellow believers. That was in uh, verse 12 of chapter 3. Here he says, be kind to those outside as well. And you know, you say, well, this is just Paul saying that. Paul's not alone. We could go to a lot of different verses. I'll give you one. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, and this is one of those that if I would have practiced this so many different times, it would have changed some outcomes on some things. Paul says a soft answer, a soft answer, a gentle answer, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I like the way the Amplified Bible puts this verse. It says, a soft and gentle and thoughtful answer turns away wrath, but harsh and painful and careless words stir up anger. Probably ought to think a lot more than we speak. Don't you agree? The person who goes around speaking harshly to people cannot effectively share the gospel. But you know, a lot of our speech oftentimes, and it's just human nature, a lot of our speech towards people who think differently than we do, people who are outside the faith, so to speak, a lot of our speech ends up being judgmental. One preacher I heard said, God didn't call us to be the judge. That's his job. God didn't call us to be the prosecuting attorney to go bring the charges up against people. We don't like what you're doing. No, no, no. You know whose job that is? That's Satan's job. He is the accuser. It is his job. God's called us to a different job. He's called us to be the witness. He says, you'll be my witnesses. That's 
what he told the disciples. That's what he says to us. We are to be his witnesses, and we cannot witness to people who won't listen. And people won't listen to us if we're mean and hateful. That's why Paul says, let your speech be always with grace. One more interesting note, maybe as a southerner even more, but he says season it with salt. Now he doesn't specify how much salt, he just says to season it with salt. I guess that's to taste. But a lot of different uses for salt. Salt's used as a preservative. Salt can be used as a de-icer. You ever sprinkle it on your steps when the weather gets real cold, you know? But here he doesn't say to do any of those things. He says season. Use it as a seasoning. When we add salt to food, what are we trying to do? We're trying to enhance its flavor. We're trying to make it more appealing. That's what he tells us to do as we live and we speak. We ought to do it in such a way that it makes the gospel attractive. Do you know there's a lot of people, a lot of people in a lot of churches who live in such a way they turn people off from the gospel. That ought not to be the way we live our lives. We ought to live and speak in such a way that people will see the gospel as attractive and they'll want some of it. And I'll just I'll just tell you this. The Supreme Court on Friday did not outlaw abortion. All the Supreme Court said was this is not a constitutional issue. This is an issue that ought to be decided by the people and their elected representatives. I am so thankful that in the state of Arkansas, the people and their, our elected representatives have spoken and abortion is illegal in the state of Arkansas. It's illegal in about half the states after Friday. That means it's still legal in the other half. That means the fight for life has really only just begun. And it's more important now than it ever has because half the states are still allowing unborn children to be murdered in their mother's womb. The only way that'll ever end, it was not going to end by having a pro-life rally. It's not going to end by having a protest and holding up signs. Never going to change your mind that way. The only way life will ever be protected in the entire United States, one municipality, one jurisdiction at a time, is for God to change the hearts and the minds of the people in control there. And that happens one way, and that's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only force powerful enough to change the hearts and minds of people who are dead set on allowing the murder of innocent children. We have the job of sharing the gospel. You see how important it is? We will never attract people to the gospel if we don't live and speak in such a way that we are kind to others and we show them the love of Jesus. As we prepare for our invitation this morning, I invite you just like I've Tried to do all week. Take an inventory of your life. Are there areas where you really need to be more kind to people? Are there areas in your life where you need to uh, step back and you say, you know what, I'm not living towards these people in the way I ought to live. 
I'm not speaking to these people in the way I ought to speak. I'm not posting things online that are attracting people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you, you hear and you say, you know what, this all sounds really good. But I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I'm telling you, you can't live in such a way that pleases Jesus unless you know him as Savior first. Brother Leary quoted one of my favorite verses, read it from the Bible earlier today, and that's from Romans 10, 13. If you confess with, or it starts, I start back a little earlier. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 13 says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, time is of the essence. Time's running out. I hope you won't leave here today without talking to me, talk to Brother Eric, talk to Brother Garrett. We can't save you, but we can tell you more about the one who can. During this time of invitation, would you take care of whatever business the Lord led you to? Let's sing. Number 109.